Welcome to Spiniverse. Hi, everybody. We are back with some more Levitical fun. And with us, we have brought a Levine. You know, Ben, you should know some things about Leviticus being, you know, of the Levitical clan yourself, Ben Levine. So why don't we start with Ben and uh, we'll do our introductions. I'm Rabbi Josh, he, him pronouns, director of Gatcher Hillel. Uh, I'm Ben Levine, he, him pronouns. Uh, I currently am the head of the programming committee. Uh, my name is Ryan Ornstein. I am the co-chair of Gautra Hillel Shabbat Committee. She, her pronouns. My name is Leah Sawyer. She, her pronouns. And I am Gautra Hillel co-president. All right, guys. Um, let me see. I don't even know where to start with this portion. It's got a lot of stuff. And I tried to leave out some of the more um, gross things, I would say, from the particular portion. Because this one gets pretty... Um, biological, I would say, you know, um, and we're going to get into some of that. So here you go. All right, Ben, go ahead. In the Torah portion, Tazria, God instructs Moses about the purification rituals for mothers following childbirth. God then describes to Moses and Aaron the procedures for identifying the responding and responding to those infected with leprosy. In Metzora, God describes the purification ritual for people and homes afflicted with skin diseases. God also instructs Moses and Aaron regarding the laws of the emission of bodily fluids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we got a double portion of this. So there's a whole lot going on. Obviously, in our time, we can't cover everything in the portion. But I wanted to give a little bit this next text of a little bit of like pretext because I will say this, in our time going through Leviticus, um, it's very difficult to understand a lot of the sacrificial law from a modern perspective. And, you know, Leah and Ryan and I have been talking about this a lot. Um, and so this is uh, Mary Douglas, who is a biblical scholar who approaches Leviticus from a different angle. And I think this might be an interesting sort of lens to put on it. So go for it, Ryan. You're up. Right. The Leviticus writer has a bad name as a formalist, intent on minute observance, a ritual, also as excessively preoccupied with sex and disease. Uh, here, it may be remarked that religions which ritualize sex are usually far more in favor than against. To suppose that the numerous sexual regulations of Leviticus exhibit a narrowly puritanical attitude to sex would be like expecting a culture with numerous food rules to condemn good food. It is where sex is recognized as a potent elemental force, at once the source of desire, fulfillment, and danger, that religion seeks to appropriate sex and to bind it with rules. Compared with other religious teachers, the Leviticus writer is not unusually high-minded, obsessed with cleanliness, or sex-denying. Sex Toilet practices, discharge of fluids, and physical impurities do not inter interest him as such. True to God's compassionate concern with fertility as his strong interest is in reproduction. He has used a strict principle of selection to focus exclusively on three topics. On a woman's discharge of blood, menstruating or post-perturient, on leprosy, on male and female genital discharges. These are the only medical topics in the book. Yeah, and we get them all today. All right, that was uh, a lot of stuff. So maybe I'll stop there. Your thoughts on this, having read some Leviticus to this point, yeah. We love men having thoughts on how women should deal with their bodies. 
makes me really happy that male scholars are like I know Mary Douglas is gonna go out on a limb and assume that maybe she's they're female but we still have to contend with the fact that there's hundreds of years of men dictating how women have autonomy over their bodies and biblical or not no thank you absolutely gotta love men regulating women's bodies since the beginning of time (laughs) time (laughs) yeah there's definitely part of a patriarchal thing about that ownership of women's sexuality or bodies being yeah being adjudicated here um the question is how does judaism's version of it stack up to those of other religions right because no unfortunately it's it's so much you know in every religion um and then what do we do with this stuff today i think is really the question for us is you know do we chuck it do we explain it do we reinterpret it does it have any meaning for us um as 21st century folks, you know, regardless, and, you know, and maybe looking at it through different lenses based on our denominations of Judaism, things like that too. Well, let's get right into the text here, folks. Leah, I think you're up for this one. Leviticus 15, 16 to 24. When a man has an emission of semen, he shall bathe his whole body in water and remain unclean until evening. All cloth or leather on which semen falls shall be washed in water and remain unclean until evening. And if a man has carnal relations with a woman, they shall bathe in water and remain unclean until evening. When a woman has a discharge, her discharge being blood from her body, she shall remain in her impurity seven days. Whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. Anything that she lies on during her impurity shall be unclean, and everything that she sits on shall be unclean. Anyone who touches her bedding shall wash his clothes, bathe in water, and remain unclean until evening and anyone who touches oh sorry any object on which she has sat shall wash his clothes bathe in water and remain unclean until evening be it the bedding or be it the object on which she has sat on touching it he shall be unclean until evening and if a man lies with her her impurity is communicated to him he shall be unclean seven days and any bedding on which he lies shall become unclean it would have survived covid very interesting that it's unclean until evening specifically (laughs) yeah okay any thoughts on that ben why would you think until evening (laughs) i have no clue i maybe uh so that you can pray i have no clue though it's very interesting would my pray the menstruation away my guess (laughs) my guess with that is that since like the, the day ends at sundown until evening would technically be, I guess, like until the next day. Correct. Right? Because that That's would be correct. when the new day starts. The new Jewish day, yes, which starts at, at nightfall. So, yeah, that's a part of it. I, I will say I picked this part of the whole portion because of all the parts of the portion, the ones about leprosy and other things, are not really as practiced in modern-day Judaism, but to some extent – in particularly the Orthodox community, this one is, and I, I, we can subsume a lot of these rules under what would be called the laws of Nida, which means 
laws concerning menstruation and kind of the status of women during menstruation and after menstruation. Um, though, as you see here too, and I thought it was important to include that men also become impure when they, whether it's semen or there's a whole other piece that I took out about uh, uh, any other kind of discharge for getting in back into our uh, ninth grade. Um, yeah, but can you scroll back up for a second? Uh, yep, you got it. Yep. Thank you. For okay, for men, they remain unclean until evening. For women, it's seven days. Yep. So let let's let's take that note when we're saying it's the same for both. It's not. It's absolutely not the same for both, right? But there there are provisions for both. Yeah, Ryan, go ahead. Um in the modern context, I don't enjoy this. I don't even like it now. I don't like the idea of telling women that they're unclean or impure over something that they have no control over. And if we're going through it, God, like if we're, if we're kind of keeping it as like God created everybody, yada, yada, yada. He like, I guess logically, like he could have not given women menstrual cycles and then he gave it to them and is like, I'm going to give this to you and you're going to be unclean and impure for seven days. Yeah. Well, I guess the question is, what does unclean and impure mean? You know, does it mean bad? Um, because it doesn't seem so. So Rachel Adler or Rachel Adler, different points in her life. I'm going to, it's just an interesting case study because we're talking actually about one person who is a Jewish theologian, a woman who at early on in her career was Orthodox and later on in her career became reform and had two different takes on this whole practice of menstruation and on immersing, immersing in the mikvah once a month, which is something that Orthodox women do, you know, to end the Nita period and how she saw it. So, Kind of interesting to maybe look at two different takes from the same person on this practice. And then what do we do with it today? If we can go there. Um, all right, I'll read this first one and then uh, Ben, you're up with the second one if we're going through rotation here. All right, this is 1973. Um, she writes, Tuma, that means um, impurity, is the result of our confrontation with the fact of our own mortality. It is the going down into darkness. Tahara, that's purity, is the result of our reaffirmation of our own immortality, is the re-entry into light. Tuma is evil or frightening only when there is no further life. Otherwise, Tuma is simply part of the human cycle. To be tame, impure, is not wrong or bad. Often it is necessary and sometimes it is mandatory. So that's one take in 1973, which became pretty like key to like kind of re-understanding the idea of purity and impurity in a more modern context. Um, ben, wh or whoever wants to read this next one, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Go for it, Leah. Yeah. The only rationale that sources oh, did sorry, not. Sorry, just a, a little bit above that. Oh, okay. 20 years, later. Yeah. 20 years later, as a feminist reform theologian, I continue to be faced with an essay I wrote, an essay that continues to be quoted, cited, and reproduced. Pro promulgating. Options and, yeah. oh, okay, that. options and prescribing actions that I now cannot in good conscience endorse. The only rationale the sources did not offer was the rationale that motivates all sincere piety, the one that holds out 
to men that observing the commandments would make one holier and bring one closer to God. When Jewish women who were not Orthodox appropriated my reframing of immersion in the mikvah to mark occurrences for which no ritual expression had existed, they taught me an important lesson about the possibility of salvage. They began using the mikvah to purify themselves of events that had threatened their lives or left them feeling wounded or bereft or sullied as sexual beings, ovarian tumors, hysterectomies, mastectomies, miscarriages, incest, rape. In waters whose meaning they had transformed and made their own, they blessed God for renewed life. The makers have imbued these rituals with a different understanding of what purity means. Yeah, that one was actually from 1993. Um, so, so yeah, this is a complicated thing. You know, I think that what you said is right, that it is part of a canon of men, priests, you know, having ownership of women's bodies. And yet there's also this modern reinterpretation of people taking it in a different way. Go ahead, Leah. Um, something that stands out to me that I'm thinking back to weeks ago when Beth was here, when we had a discussion about um, when we were talking about women in another portion, um, that's about it being not, not about whether or not a certain, um, maybe whether a certain ritual is like, oh, this is against women or whatever, but about it being like, it being a woman's or someone who would go in the mikvah, it being their choice, mm -hmm. it being about them choosing what's meaningful to them as a Jewish person to do and how they express Judaism um, and having a choice and how they do that, that makes it powerful or not powerful and not being, not having how they find meaning in Jewish tradition dictated by other people saying what they have to do and do not have to do. So I know like a lot of Orthodox women and that kind of thing will be like, I go to the mikvah because it's meaningful for me as a Jew and following this tradition means a lot. And that's awesome for them. They should do whatever they find meaning in, but like they, it about being able to, for them to decide what's meaningful for them and doing that because it's meaningful for them as Jewish people and part of how they express Judaism rather than someone, especially like a male being like, you have to do this. All I would add to that, I think for Orthodox women is this, and, that it, and it is complicated, is the sense of commandedness. And that for many, the sense of fulfillment of doing a ritual act is about fulfilling the idea that they feel that as a command that came from God, a genderless God, at least, you know, in most of Jewish tradition, although there are ways in which God takes on gender, both male and female, actually, throughout Jewish history. So that's an interesting concept to play with, too. Go ahead, Ben. I mean, yeah, just sort of like bouncing off that, you can kind of see it in the texts, how like, you know, originally she was Orthodox and she's saying, um, you know, Tuma, you know, impurity is evil. Um, sorry, very much listening to the Bible, but, you know, 20 years later, um, you know, becoming reform sort of realized it's kind of what I make of it. Mm -hmm. You know, and look, our denominational experiences will definitely color how we would see a text like this for sure. Um, 
Okay. Anything else on this one before we go to the next one? Cause it sort of gets a little bit further into the same, same vein. All right. So here we go. This is about, uh, this will, this will definitely, uh, raise some, some heads about gender and, uh, and all of that. I can read this one. Go for it. Ben. All right. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the Israelite people thus. When a woman at childbirth bears a male, she shall be unclean seven days. She shall be unclean as at the time of her menstrual infirm, infirmary, eh, in, someone help me here. <laughs> Infirmity. Infirmity. Thank you. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Shall, she shall remain in a state of blood purification for 33 days. She shall not touch any consecrated thing, nor enter the sanctuary until her period of purification is complete. If she bears a female, she shall be unclean two weeks as during her menstruation, and she shall remain in a state of blood purification for 66 days. That's very unfair. I have some thoughts. Yeah. I also uh, have some thoughts. <laughs> share your thoughts. So I'm trying to figure out how to word this in a way that won't get me just a string of bleeps. Um, I mean, it's unfair, first off. <laughs> but, like, here's my thing. So, barring the fact that apparently if you give birth to a woman, you seem to be a little bit more unclean than if you give birth to a male, which is a whole other topic that I will touch on so like isn't there this whole thing that like you should go and have a lot of children and like woohoo birth why would you take something that is so like is viewed as such like um like i guess a miracle and something really happy and joyous and then be like you can do this but you're unclean also i just think it's like really unfair to make a woman like so many things like women that have carried children like they've carried the child in them for like nine months and now they're unclean oh my god just men men need to not yeah, you know, I, I really wanted to give you some nice texts that are just like real easy and um, prob- not problematic this week. So, <laughs> but it, it is, you know, it's, it, the Parsha is the Parsha is the Parsha. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's good to be able to go toe to toe and to look at it. And yeah, there are some issues here. Go ahead, May ben. possibly get some clarification on the blood purification. What's that all about? <laughs> Um, you mean that like additional period after the seven days and then that 33 yeah, days? Yeah, so the, the 33 days for males and then the 66 days for females. Yeah, so um, besides the like not, you know, people will be unclean sitting near that person. And then this goes to the whole red tent. If you've ever read that book by Anita Diamond that kind of uh, uses a fiction device to kind of talk about the idea that, you know, it created a society for women to be able to connect with one another outside of the eyes of men. Um, but uh, here it seems to be that that's, that's a, you know, a time during which she wouldn't be able to be intimate with her husband, um, which may have served some, you know, some use in terms of giving kind of like a dedicated, you want to call it maternity leave sort of period to be like, connected mostly to the child who was just born. Um, 
I don't know, you know, but it, it, it's like, basically it's like, because nobody's, you don't bleed for that long afterwards. It's usually, you know, maybe it's about a week or something like that, but um, there is this sort of additional tacked on period. Yeah. That's like purification that goes to this whole, whole thing. Yeah. Here's my question. And I have no, I have very little knowledge about Jewish burial rituals outside of like a very basic knowledge. So giving birth is, uh, the woman is unclean. So let's say, heaven forbid, a woman dies in childbirth. Mm-hmm. How is she buried? Does she, like, is there a certain ritual that she has to go through in order to, like, have a proper burial? Well, there are traditional rituals for burial, regardless of, you know, gender or regardless of situation that do involve like washing the body, not immersing it in a mikvah, but washing the body and the body being watched, watched over by people until burial. Um, I, I'm not aware of any different rituals in the case of a mother who dies in childbirth. In your instance, are you talking about the child surviving as well or no? Yeah, child survives. It's more just like the rituals surrounding like how like would she be considered clean or unclean? Once someone dies, that's another place in here. A, a, a corpse, a dead body, is seen as unclean as a source of un, of tuma of uncleanness. So regardless of the situation, whether or not it, the person was menstruating at that time. You know, anyone who touches the body becomes unclean and has to remain so until evening and then immerse, usually. Um, and this is the thing about why Kohanim, I don't know if you've heard about this, but Kohanim priests, people from priestly families, even today sometimes, don't go to funerals because they won't be in the room with the body. So there's actually like some Jewish funeral homes have like a whole setup where you can watch the funeral from a different room. And now since we live in Zoom world, you know, that's, that's kind of pretty uh, possible. Um, but yeah, so I'm not sure if that answers your question, Ryan, whether it relates to this much or not. Yeah, that was, yeah, it was just like, because unfortunately it can happen. Yeah, um, it's true. I don't know. I I don't like that men, it seems like, are dictating what women are and how women are considered, especially considering law, like long-term they don't have a huge stake in it. They're not going to die during the childbirth. They're not the one who has to carry it for nine months. Well, depends on your question about the authorship because there too, right? If the priests wrote it, yeah, sure. But, you know, if it's God, well, that's kind of above and beyond the laws of men. So, you know, that's what it is. So If it's God, the beef still stands. God does not have so. a uterus either. So still not the decision. How do we know? God. You know? All right. So here's a version. Here's one women's commentary. I wanted to really bring women's voices here, considering the text that we're looking at and the comment, you know, that, that the voices that really were here should be women's voices who do have a uterus, who can really understand this from a different perspective. Um, so this is from the Torah, a women's commentary. Why that am takes I here, then? This <laughs> All right. Um, I'm going to put the God doesn't have a uterus on the t-shirt. Definitely. I'm going to. <laughs> Um, New Hillel t-shirt. All right. Who would like to read this one? I will. Go for it. Or Ryan can. You want to split it? You got two paragraphs. Sure. Sure. I'll start. Um, 
Regardless of whether a woman bears a son or a daughter, the rituals of purification are the same. Why then must a woman spend twice as long in a state of impurity following the birth of a girl than following the birth of a boy? Hmm. Traditional interpreters have assumed that this is because the birth of a girl creates a kind of double impurity. Possibly because newborn girls contain the latent capacity for menstruation and reproduction. But another point is also important here. In ancient Israel, baby girls arguably faced lives filled with more risks than baby boys. Israel was a society of which economic value occurred primarily to sons. They remained part of their father's households even when they married, inherited their family's ancestral lands, and cared for their aging parents. In contrast, there is no evidence to suggest that girls were some. There is evidence. Tell- what? There is evidence to suggest. There is, thank you. There is evidence to suggest that girls were sometimes thought of as expendable. In times of need, famine, and war, baby girls might suffer hunger and neglect, or even be abandoned and left to die. Ooh. Ryan, are you going to read this? <laughs> or are you well, trying to? Real quick. Um, you want me to, Ryan? No, no, <laughs> no. I can keep reading if you want, right? It's fine. The priestly authors seem to be concerned about this situation. I wonder why. And try to avert such tragedies by ensuring that baby girls stay in their mother's protective care for an extended period of time. Hmm. This not only allows mother and daughter to bond tightly, but also ensures that the child is nursed and cared for. Thus, this troubling passage can be understood not as discrimination against women, but as a way to promote God's loving community and to guarantee that women and men, both created in the divine image, are nurtured and protected. Oh my... None of that works. If we're going back to the... If we're going back to the... In the second paragraph, they're kind of framing it like, oh, God wants to take care of everyone because God built this like loving community. But that kind of contradicts the first paragraph when they're like, they just left the girls to die. So I'm like, if God created this, it was in charge of all this and was setting it up so that the girl babies would be protected. If you're doing that under the like God created the whole community, you'd think God would create a community where these girls weren't left to be hungry and neglected and abandoned and left to die. So I guess it just almost is saying two different things. I think like what God it's- is wanting to protect the girls from the society that's going on around them, but also God wanted to like honor this beautiful co- community that they made. And I'm like, which is it? It's almost like they're contradicting themselves. Right. I think what they're trying to say is that, there's evidence that there's like sociological evidence that at some point there was abandonment of infant girls and that this law was meant to be like a corrective to that um, in response to that. Um, And that depends on, again, what you think about the authorship of the biblical text. If you think that this text was not written during the journey in the desert, but about a thousand or more years later, when Israel is living in the land, in temple, you know, like, and all of that, um, then it's it sort of can make sense, part of what the argument that they're saying. I still don't like it for a couple of reasons. Um, one, it puts, okay, so I don't know who gets to decide if the baby girl is abandoned. Um, let's just 
put it out there and maybe assume that it's the man. If it's a woman, I still have arguments against it, but I'm looking at it in the context of like, the man of the household is making the decisions. Um, you need to, there shouldn't have to be like, I'm trying to figure out how to word this. The responsibility shouldn't be on women to protect themselves from crappy men. Like, the fact that they had to put laws in place is in, is problematic that this was happening. Like, uh, oh, sorry, sorry. Um, what's that? Like, okay, everybody's created in God's divine image. Lovely, great, amazing. Wow, that should like that kind of reads off to me as like everybody should be equal. Um, and to then like turn around and let this thing continue on where girls are abandoned because they're impure because they have they have something that they can't physically control and then we're going to put laws in place that like mandate it just it frustrates me like this this whole thing frustrates me very much fair enough i understand that absolutely um yeah it's it's hard because again it's coming from a different historical context in the time in which much harsher conditions prevailed. I think what I'm trying to say is that we live in different times now where the idea of abandoning people is anathema to our values on a on a host of levels. And of course it is to the priests as well, but they're also responding to like you know difficult times and trying to create something that makes it make sense in in this Again, if you're going with this interpretation, I'm not arguing that it's right, um, but it's an interesting take in the sense that were they really against women? You know, were the, did the priests really, were they really doubling down on, you know, negativity towards women or was there some something in this that was trying to work towards protection of women in a society that was patriarchal? Because the patriarchy itself at that time couldn't be dismantled, right? It was worldwide. Um, so Still what, is. and you know, yeah, but to some extent, but I think, you know, or at least we could say we're in the act of dismantling it, but you know, so I, yeah, this, these texts are really hard to look at from a 21st century lens, really hard and really hard to accept and really hard to like sit with and be like, Oh, that was okay. And yeah. yeah. Um, I have a very hard time men we're acting in the interests of women altruistically. I have a very hard time believing that considering how much of modern sexism and like patriarchal societies are based in religion. Like a lot of the arguments that come up for, oh, women are subservient. Women are only like there for ch children comes from religion. And I just, I have a very, very hard time believing men were acting selflessly in making these laws with women. Yeah. Like, call me whatever you want to call me. I don't believe it. So I, I mean, I don't if you look it. at the way society's set up in this time, who do you think is the one who set it up like that in the first place? Clear. Absolutely. So no arguments there. I think the question today is, what do we do with texts like these? Is there any chance at any type, sort of reclamation of the practices, the texts? 
do we just look at them as evidence of some of these things that we don't like and I, know I that think, we came from it? You know, I think, you know, what Leah brought up as like the choice, women having a choice as to how like going to a mikvah, I think we should to be looked at as a purely historical context. I don't like the idea of giving anything um, that sort of unintentionally or intentionally puts women as unclean or dirty. I don't like giving it any modern power or modern interpretation because that is, we can't play devil's advocate. We cannot do that in this situation. Point blank, it was a horrible thing then. It's a horrible thing now. The only thing I like to reclaim from it is that women should have a choice as to when they go into the mikvah and for what. Okay. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. I also feel like an important note to circle back to is obviously women are not the only people who give birth or have a period. Just in the context of this text, that is how it is set up. So that's, I think, like, why we're having this conversation the way it is. I just think that's an important, like, disclaimer. Yeah, no. I agree. Yeah, and, and I think you, these texts, you know, how do trans folks find themselves in these texts? And what do these texts mean for the trans community finding themselves when there is such a very binary gender text like this? You know, what yeah. room does it allow? Is um, the trans community ever actually, like, mentioned in the Torah? Not there like seven separate genders or sexes mentioned. Not in the Torah, but in rabbinic literature, there's a lot of that actually. Yeah. And there are different sort of, yeah, there are a lot of different kind of gender constructs that are mentioned in rabbinic literature. We can definitely go into that another time. Um, such as the tomb tomb, the androgynos, and there are ways in which they do and don't corresponds to modern trans categories in, in some ways, but what they show is a at least 2000 year old um, identification and understanding that gender is not clearly a binary, you know, within the Jewish community. Um, so, you know, there, there's something to build on there. I think that's important to mention. I appreciate you bringing it up. All right, guys, this was a uh, man really packed session. I really appreciate you joining us, Ben, Ryan, Leah, and always. And uh, we'll see you all next week. Thanks. Any closing notes, jokes, anything? Look, Be on the lookout for links that have a, a go-to for Matt. God doesn't have a uterus. We'll be putting it on T-shirts. I think I decided to join the wrong session. <laughs> oh, you totally joined the right one, Ben. You know, we're all here for a reason at the right time. And you feel free to join us another week for something totally different. All right. Thanks, bye. Spiniverse is a production of Goucher Hillel. If you'd like to look at the text that we've been studying today, take a look at the link in our episode description. Have a wonderful week.